Jesus is coming. Hey, good. Maranatha, right? Can I hear you say it? Maranatha. Maranatha. Jesus is coming. Gary has gone home. Mary has gone home. It's just us to carry on with what they left us, what they gave us. You remember what Gary said last week? I told him he passed the baton running at full stride. And I got it, and I'm running. Don't drop the baton. What did he say? The main thing. What's the main thing? Somebody say it. Make disciples. All right. I'm only here for a short time. I'm leaving, so I can get in trouble. Raise your hand if you did something to make a disciple this week. Raise your hand. Good for you. Put them down quick, because I don't want to ruin you with pride. <laughs> it's not just the pastors and missionaries and deacons that make disciples, folks. It's every single disciple. If you're a disciple, you are making disciples through prayer, through loving relationship, through teaching, through companionship. It's simple. Love Jesus with all your heart and love other people like he loves you. The rest is natural. The rest sort of comes along and you figure it out if you do those two things. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. But I want to start a new series this morning. David, do you want to change those slides or do you want me to do it? Will this work? It will? Okay, I'll try. Uh, so as I prayed about what the Lord would bring to us, and I do think of myself as us, you don't have to call me pastor. If it makes you feel good to call me pastor, that's fine. I'm not going to fight about it. Douglas seems to think, you know, that's what he should do. Uh, I think he's trying to make me upset. But I'm Thomas. I'm, I'm a fellow traveler under the chief shepherd. And I believe he wants to teach us about his bride, uh, particularly what the Bible says about the church. This was decided before the deacons decided to do a Sunday school series from the Nine Marks book. So I believe the Lord is truly confirming that for our time together. And we're going to start today with living as the betrothed. Now here's a vocabulary lesson. Gary did a grammar lesson. I'm going to do a vocabulary lesson. Uh, betrothed, do you know what that word means? I looked it up this week. Betrothed came into English, and I like the way that says that, because English is this collection of hodgepodge words from all different languages from Europe, and that's why it's so hard to spell and pronounce. It came into English through a combination of two words, by or be, which means thoroughly, and troe, the old English word for truth or pledge. So you'll read in old-fashioned uh, romances, he offered her his troth. They'll actually use that word for truth. He told her, he pledged her with the truth that he would give her his life. So here's what it says. One who is betrothed is completely and formally pledged to someone else. The Bible calls us his bride. Now be careful because our modern worldview is very materialistic and individualistic and don't get swept into this romantic idea that I am Christ's bride. No, not I. We, we are Christ's bride. We are all members of it and members of one another in it. That's what the Bible teaches. So this morning I'd like to go to Matthew chapter 25 
Turn in your Bible, or you can look on the screen, but I would really rather you bring your Bible to Sunday, whether it's electronic or whether it's physical, and bring a pen or highlight on your electronic Bible so that you can remember what the Lord says to you out of his word. This is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and it starts with the word, then. I have to stop. I'm not going to stop at every word or we'll never get out of here. But then is very important because a text without a context is a pretext. You need to write that down. A text without a context is a pretext. So it's so easy to grab a phrase, to grab a verse, and hang on to it for dear life because it says what you want it to say. Be very careful. You've got to put it in the context of the whole book. I won't ask you how many of you have read the whole book. The whole book is about God's conquering of our hearts through Jesus in the world, filling all things in every way with his love through the gospel, through Christ, who is the cornerstone, the centerpiece. But the context here for then is Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew chapter 24 is actually the answer of a question in Matthew chapter 23, which is, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of their coming? The disciples ask Jesus about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And so chapter 24 is this telescope. Maybe you've heard that term with prophecy. There's telescopic prophecy where you see things lined up into the future. They're at different periods. There's not a real clear picture. Kind of like looking at a mountain range. Those of you who have seen mountains, and you'll see two mountains that look like they're neighbors, but they're actually miles apart. They just happen to be lined up from your perspective. That's what chapter 24 does. Most uh, students of the word believe that this story is focused primarily on the Jews. Because Matthew 24 predicts the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. That's pretty clear. Now here's a thought. You don't have to believe it, but this is how I think about the virgins in this story, which we're going to read in a minute. The ten virgins perhaps are the Jews going out to wait for the bridegroom coming to get the church, the bride, who is all those who understand and believe the gospel. We can discuss that later, but that's the context of then. Let's continue. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, thank you for changing that, David. Can you just take it and change it on this because I'm reading? Uh, but the, the, for, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, 
open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now I want to take one minute, and I'd like to have you turn to your neighbor, somebody you came with or maybe not, and in the language that comes first to you, tell this story to your neighbor. Speak it to them. What did I just read? Tell whatever you remember, and neighbor, you listen well, and then at the end say, well, you left out this detail and that detail and this detail. You got one minute to do it, and I'm timing. Okay, those of you who listened, how'd they do? Tell them how they did. Did they do well or did they miss anything? So that was practice because this week when somebody says, what did you talk about at church this week? You'll be able to tell them the story, going up the elevator or riding in an Uber, wherever you are. Tell the story. And I hope you can give some application in a few minutes as well. I gave Susanna a diamond ring on August the 29th, 1987. It was her birthday. That's why I remember the date. <laughs> we had met on her birthday when she was 18, just three years before. And we got engaged three years later on her birthday. And she answered me with a kiss. <laughs> At that point, my whole life became preparation for the most wonderful moment and weeks of my existence up to that point. I was planning a one-month honeymoon through Central America, starting in Acapulco. My friend was a construction worker in Phoenix. Susanna lived in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where we still live. Uh, and so I took a four-day motorcycle trip to Phoenix, left her behind two days after getting engaged, got two jobs in Phoenix, working uh, construction during the day, leaving at 6 a.m., came home, took a shower, and went to the Mexican restaurant where I was a waiter until about 10, where I went home and called Susanna. But we didn't have cell phones, couldn't text, no email. We had a landline, which costs, I don't know, $2 a minute to make a long-distance call. So I would call and let it ring once and hang up. That was my way of saying, I love you. I'm coming. I'm working hard to make a place for us. And let me tell you, when something bad happened on the job, it was sad. I hit my finger with the hammer or 
Some, I, I once burned my arm on a fajita pan, if you've ever seen a, you know, a little handle sticking off there. It, those things were a little bit painful, but it did not take away the joy of my betrothal. And that's just a little picture of what I want to leave with you this morning. If you are sure that you are the betrothed of Christ, that you are his beloved, that you and the walking people of God have been chosen by him and have been given a guarantee and are being prepared for the wedding supper of the Lamb, nothing will take your joy away. Nothing will disrupt the, the deep peace and comfort that you have in the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is sadness. Yes, we weep. We wept yesterday together. But the Lord consoles us through his spirit. So what's happening in this story? Uh, I looked up this week a guy named Ray Vanderland, who is a, a student of first century culture, biblical times. And this is what he says about wedding, uh, uh, wedding ceremonies in the first century. During biblical times, a young man who wanted to marry would go, oh, you know what, David, you didn't change it. Look, there's me when I was getting engaged. <laughs> Can you just make that a blank page now, David? We don't need to look at me for the rest of the, the, rest of the time. <laughs> Thank you. So the man, the young man who wanted to marry would go with his father to the chosen woman's house to meet her and her father. They'd negotiate a steep bride price, the money or, fi uh, the money or physical items that the woman's father would ask for in exchange for giving up his valuable daughter. Then the young man's father would hand his son a cup of wine. The son, in turn, would offer it to the woman and say, this cup I offer to you. In effect, he was saying, I love you and I offer you my life. Will you marry me? If she drank it, sealing their engagement, she accepted his life and gave him hers. If not, she simply said no. So here's the question, plain and simple. Have you said yes or no? The bridegroom has come with his father, sent by his father to receive, to woo his chosen bride. The bride price has been paid. You know, I was in Uganda a couple years ago, and they said, five daughters, you should move to Uganda. You know, every time a father of a daughter gives her in marriage, he gets either a cow or a Toyota Corolla. They're about the same value. <laughs> but after a short consideration, I thought, well, I'd rather have five daughters than a herd or a fleet. Jesus has paid the price. When he told this story, he understood that everyone there had done this. In fact, I wonder if he was part of the procession that went to Cana. I bet he was. I bet his mom was a friend of the bride's. I'm just making this up now. I'm letting you know it's not in the Bible. But it's very likely that the wedding procession arrived at Cana, and maybe Jesus and his disciples came along with it. This was a very common practice. So everyone knew that like today, brides are late. Bridegrooms were late. They were delayed. He was delayed. It was the middle of the night. They all slept, which is what usually happened. Well, part of the fun. And then the shout went up. 
The bridegroom arrived. They had a little ceremony at the bride's house, and then they walked together back to the father of the groom's house, which is where he would have prepared a place for not just their honeymoon, but the seven-day party that ensued after the wedding feast. This is not a short event. We're talking about eternity here. And it's not an everlasting church service. If the devil's convinced you of that, then come talk to me because I have some, some uh, things to tell you about heaven that's just keep you running, keep you going. Praise the Lord. So now we have to come to what it means. We talked about what it says, but what does it mean for us? So what? As you look at these two groups of five, there are all similarities except one, right? They all went out to the bridegroom. They all had torches. By the way, they say that lamps were not the little clay lamps, but this was an external event, so probably it was a big torch with rags and oil and something holding the rags on that burned for a while and then had to continually be doused to keep going until the night was, uh, until the party was uh, started. They all had lamps. They all fell asleep. The wise ones didn't stay awake. The wise ones didn't keep watching, which is what he says at the end. They all fell asleep because the bridegroom took a long time to come. They were all virgins. He could have chosen bad people and good people. He didn't. They were all virgins. They were all uh, pure. The only difference between the wise and the foolish is that the wise brought a jar of oil. Now, I got this jar from Mary's collection of jars, which is epic, I understand, or was. This is one of Mary's jars. And all of us know the oil that Mary carried in her soul. I bet there's not a person here that wasn't somehow touched by the oil of the Holy Spirit in Sister Mary's life. She had it. She had the oil. The question is, do you or do I? And how can you tell? And then how do you get it? I hope that's what we're going to do with the few minutes that we have left. Jesus is telling this story to what Paul calls a group of people who long for his appearing. And I want to read this passage to you, this verse, in 2 Timothy 4.8. You can make a note of that or look it up. 2 Timothy 4.8. And this is in the Amplified Version, so it's sort of uh, expanded. In the future, there is reserved for me the victor's crown of righteousness for being right with God and doing right, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that great day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved and longed for and welcomed his appearing. If you are his betrothed, nothing takes your longing away. Your hope only grows with affliction. That's what Romans 5 and James 1 say. Affliction just beats your hope deeper into your soul because you are part of his beloved and nothing can take you out of his hand. 
Olives, by the way, are beaten to make oil. The only difference between wise and foolish is one has oil and one doesn't. Why didn't they have oil? Why didn't those virgins go and get oil? Let's go back and think about the story for a minute. Maybe they were just too busy, too much to prepare before the wedding. They had their dress to fix. They had stuff to leave okay at home. The children needed caring for. They were going out. Well, not their children, their sisters probably because they were virgins. They had all this stuff to do, which was more important than preparing for the long night ahead. They didn't take time until it was too late. I had a friend named Will who always told me, well, I'll accept Jesus between the saddle and the ground. His parents were Christians. He knew the gospel. There was nothing I could tell him about the Bible that he didn't know. He said, I'm having too much fun. I'll just pray to receive Jesus before I die. Went to California to be famous as a Hollywood star. Had an accident on a mountain bike and became a paraplegic. And I called him in the hospital and he said, guess what, Thomas, there's no time between the saddle and the ground. And my friend, if you have never opened your heart to Jesus this morning, let me tell you, this is the time. You have right now, and you don't have a guarantee of getting home safe. We have time now. Those virgins didn't have time to go to the dealers. It was too late. When the shout comes, it will be too late. There's time now. Maybe they just didn't have time. Maybe they didn't think they needed it because they had their lamps. They had lamps, after all. They all looked the same. I think the oil was probably tucked into a fold of their garment somewhere, and they were out with lamps. What did those lamps represent? Well, I think it was their good works. That's what Matthew 5 said. Let your light show, so shine before men that they see what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now he's talking to his disciples who are part of his work and mission and body and are sent out to do good works. Ephesians 2.10. Four good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. But the lamp did not get them in. They were all good people. They all came to church. You might say, do you know good people like that? Good people. They might be better than you. Don't lie. Give lots of money away. Do the right thing most of the time. But the lamp is not what gets you in. It's not your good works. It's not by works that you are saved so that God gets all the glory for our salvation. It's only by his grace. It's only by faith. It's only what Jesus has done on the cross. Finally, I think maybe they didn't have oil because they depended on other people. Remember, they said, hey, give us some of your oil. I'm going with Fulana. She has a big jar of oil. I'll just use hers. Did it work? Didn't work. You can't go in on somebody's faith. Don't depend on your wife to get you in the gate. Although Paul says some things that the husband is consecrated, that probably helps him believe. You don't go on somebody else's faith. You don't go on Mary's faith. You believe. You repent. I must repent. That's what I did at seven years old. I was the son of a missionary. I had every reason to think, well, I'm part of the family. I'll just scoot in. But at seven years old, I was convicted in my heart that I would go to hell if I died that night because I depended on myself. 
and I surrendered my life to Jesus, and he started a work that has never finished and is continuing to grow in the, in the depths of my soul. So the question is, do you have oil? And how do you get it if you don't? You know, it's easy to deceive ourselves. It's really easy to deceive others. I, I can deceive you into thinking I'm a pretty good guy relatively easily. But it's even easy for me to deceive myself and to think I'm okay. I think those five foolish virgins thought they were all right. I think they thought they were going in. They wouldn't have been out there if they didn't. A neighbor of ours at the missionary base where I grew up uh, got a Dalmatian puppy. Their dad went to the capital city of Bogota in Colombia and brought back this beautiful puppy that looked like it had stepped out of the cartoon. And after school, every day, all the kids went to the neighbor's house to play with their puppy. And it was just such an amazing thing that they had one of the 101 Dalmatians at my neighbor's house. Well, that Saturday, the very first Saturday after the dad bought it home, uh, they asked the kids to wash it. And all the spots came off. The father had been deceived by a street salesman who had painted spots with tempera paint on the ugliest white mutt you ever saw. Deceived. Now, I don't know if that puppy thought he was a Dalmatian. I bet he didn't, but he sure enjoyed all the petting. In one sense, we are all deceived. When we stand in the light of God's presence, we will see our dirt through his eyes and we will crumple at the grace and mercy and love of God that has made us worthy of surviving his holy glory. We are all deceived. But some of us beggars have found bread. And we want you to find it too. I'm very afraid that there are people here who will not go in. The bridegroom will look at you and say, I'm sorry, who are you? I don't know you. I kept knocking at your door. And you thought that just being like all the other Christians was enough. But you never opened the door and let me come in to know you. You never surrendered your reign to my reign. You think you're in, but you're not. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Don't depend on being a good person. It won't get you in. So in the end, what do you have to do? And this is where we're going to go into our time of application. Can I get that back, uh, David? There are three things that I want to challenge you to do this morning especially if you've never done them before. This is so important. There is nothing more important than making sure you're at the bridegroom's supper. Nothing. So do them if you've never done it. But even if you have, I want to challenge you to repent, surrender, and press on to know the Lord. First, surrender. Jesus is the king. We don't know what that is in a democracy. Sometimes the devil convinces us that he's up for election. He's not. You are. Right? 
Jesus is the king, and he wants us to take down our little flag and put up his flag over whatever we reign over, even if you're 12 and you reign over your bedroom. Make him the king. Surrender to him now before it's too late. You know, my dad took a, a lady, uh, American lady, came to visit her kids on the mission field, and he picked them up in Bogota, Colombia, big city, in his tiny little uh, single-engine, six-passenger airplane. If you want to see that airplane, look at my Facebook page. I made it the background of my Facebook page, and I'm standing there with my brother and mom and dad. By the way, introduce yourself to me on Facebook. That's the best way for me to see your face and your name together and try to remember who all of you are. Uh, I love Facebook, and I try to go there every day just to make disciples and send the, send the message of the word out. But my dad had this lady standing outside his plane, and she was white. I mean, she was already white, but she was whiter than white. And he could tell she was very afraid. And he said, now, I want you to know this plane is well-maintained. We do all the necessary work to keep it safe. It's very safe. Uh, and I'm a good pilot, and we'll get you there safely. It's just about an hour. Can you handle that? She said, yeah, I think I can do anything for an hour. So he got her in the plane, strapped in the seatbelt, closed the little door of the plane, climbed up in the cockpit itself, roared down the runway, and off over the Andes Mountains down to the Amazon uh, plains where we lived. When he got there, he went back and opened the door, and he said, well, how'd you do? She said, I, I'm all right, but I never let all my weight down on the seat. <laughs> she hadn't surrendered. She didn't surrender. And there's some of us, in fact, I'd say there's all of us who at one time or another are gripping our lives for dear life. And we're losing our life in the process. Because we think that by trying harder, we might have more faith or we might get closer to God when he has done it. Just last night, our family was reading Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. If you haven't read that, read it with your family. Hudson Taylor served the Lord in China for years. And then suddenly, like a light coming on, he said, it's not my trying to have faith. It's coming to the faithful one that gives me joy and peace and hope. It's just surrendering. Let your weight down in the seat of Jesus. It's not by works. It's by grace. Surrender. That's the, the next one. Isaiah 53.6 All we... Like sheep. Could you say all we with me? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the good news, folks. God loves us. His son wants us for a bride forever. And he's come and paid the bride price to death and sin and hell, which owned us by right of our own rebellion. And he has opened the gate and set us free. And now he stands at the door and knocks. The door he opened. And he says, open the door and I'll come in. And I'll sup with you and you with me. I want to know you. Will you surrender to me? Will you open the door? Repent from depending on your own strength. Surrender to the king. Trade your life for his. 
receive his love and learn to love him back because he first loved you. What a treasure his love is. What a treasure. This week I heard on Jovin Pan that there are $500 million of lottery prizes that were unclaimed in 2021. They just came out with that number at the end of January. 500 million hayais that nobody went to pick up. The largest one was 120 million. Can you imagine buying a lottery ticket and winning 120 million hayais and then forgetting to go? He probably just didn't check. Fortunately, they give all that money to student debt and loans and all of that. Praise God. But <clears throat> I thought, what a great example of Christ's love that I don't receive. It's there for the receiving. Repent of making your own salvation plan and receive his. Surrender your heart, your life, your mind, your will to his. And finally, know him. Know him. And that's John 17, 3. You know, we love John 3, 16. And we quote it often, and that's good. But we get a little confused about what it means to believe. So if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. Well, yeah, I believe Jesus was a guy that lived in Palestine for 30, 30 years or so. And it looks like they crucified him. And there's good evidence that he rose from the dead. That's not saving faith. Believing means knowing him through the Holy Spirit. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I was helped greatly in this idea of knowing God by Paul's words in Galatians 4.9. Look what he says. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, equaling my confession of my own heart to to the Lord with his knowledge of me. The choice is yours. Right now, the choice is yours. He wants to know you. He wants to come in. He wants to be able to say when you knock on the door of that wedding feast, ah, yes, Joel Rast, I know you. You spent time with me. I have heard your heart cry. I've heard your prayers. We've walked together. Come in and enjoy the joy of your master. Is that what your Lord will say to you? Are you deceiving yourself this morning? Are you trying to save yourself? Do you believe that being here at Calvary will get you into heaven? It's important to come to church. I'm not saying it's not. After you have the oil of the Spirit. Colossians 1.11 is a comfort to me. And I put it here in my notes somewhere. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's the powerful might of the spirit in the soul of the betrothed. Nothing takes my joy because I am his beloved and he is mine. Do you have that oil in you? Let's pray together as we finish. And I want to challenge you in your heart. Stand, stand with me, please, and close your eyes. Would you ask the light of the Spirit? He's here. We've gathered in his name. Ask the light of the Spirit to just shine on your heart right now.
and show you if perhaps you're deceiving yourself. Ask him. Show you, ask him to show you where the oil is in your soul. Repent now of having your own kingdom, your own flag flying over your life. Take that flag down and put up the Jesus flag. Say yes, take that cup of wine from your beloved and say, I will be your betrothed, a member of your body. And then commit to knowing him better. Now, I wonder if there's someone here that's never opened that door. You've never received his grace. You've never understood that Jesus loves you, that he died in your place so that you could come to the wedding feast and the everlasting abundance of life afterwards. I'd love to pray for you. In fact, there's going to be some deacons and prayer ministers outside this door to your left and my right, right after I finish and while the worship is going on. You're welcome to go out there. But I'd like to pray for you right now, and I think it's good for you to make a commitment. If you've never opened that door and you want to say right now, Jesus, I'm opening the door right now, would you just raise your hand right where you are? Just lift it up high so I can see it. Thank you. Thank you. You can put them down. Anyone else? There's nothing more important. No more priority than this. Jesus loves you. He's done it. Put your weight on him. He will carry you all the way home. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hands that went up. Thank you for those who are opening their door for the very first time. And thank you, too, for your children who love you because you first loved them. We repent of depending on our own strength to get there, of thinking that our lights impress you like they impress us. And we trust the slow trickle of oil in our souls and ask that you would increase that pouring of the Spirit. We want to be filled to overflowing with the Spirit. We want to light other people on fire with love for you in response to what you've done. Forgive us for thinking you owe us something when we owe you our very lives and existence. We surrender all to you. And we ask you to reveal yourself to us in greater measure as we seek to know you. In your powerful name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.